Open your Bibles, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 42. We will study today chapters 42 and 43, which go together. It's one passage. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, beginning at verse 1 of Jeremiah 42. Then all the commanders of the forces, and Johanan the son of Korea, and Jezaniah the son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least to the greatest came near and said to Jeremiah the prophet, let our plea for mercy come before you and pray to the Lord your God for us, for all this remnant, because we are left with but a few as your eyes see us, that the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the thing that we should do. Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I have heard you. Behold, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your request. And whatever the Lord answers you, I will tell you, I will keep nothing back from you. Then they said to Jeremiah, may the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act according to all the word with which the Lord your God sends you to us. Whether it is good or bad, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we are sending you, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. At the end of ten days, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Then he summoned Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces who were with him, and all the people from the least to the greatest, and said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your plea for mercy before him. If you will remain in this land, then I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up, for I relent of the disaster that I did to you. Do not fear the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and deliver you from his hand. I will grant you mercy, that he may have mercy on you and let you remain in your own land. But if you say we will not remain in this land, disobeying the voice of the Lord your God, and saying, no, we will go to the land of Egypt, where we shall not see war or hear the sound of the trumpet or be hungry for bread, and we will dwell there, then hear the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, if you set your faces to enter Egypt and go to live there, then the sword that you fear shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt. And the famine of which you are afraid shall follow close after you to Egypt, and there you shall die. All the men who set their faces to go to Egypt to live there shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. They shall have no remnant or survivor from the disaster that I will bring upon them. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as my anger and my wrath were poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so my wrath will be poured out on you when you go to Egypt. You shall become an execration, a horror, a curse, and a taunt. You shall see this place no more. The Lord has said to you, O remnant of Judah, do not go to Egypt. Know for a certainty that I have warned you this day, that you have gone astray at the cost of your lives. For you sent me to the Lord your God, saying, pray for us to the Lord our God, and whatever the Lord our God says, declare to us, and we will do it. And I have this day declared it to you. But you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God in anything that he sent me to tell you. Now, therefore, know for a certainty that you shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence in the place where you desire to go to live. When Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people all these words of the Lord their God, with which the Lord their God had sent him to them, Azariah, the son of Hoshiah, and Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the insolent men said to Jeremiah, you are telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say, do not go to Egypt to live there. But Baruch, the son of Neriah, has set you against us to deliver us, and to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans, that they may kill us or take us into exile in Babylon. So Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces and all the people did not obey the voice of the Lord to remain in the land of Judah. But Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces took all the remnant of Judah who had returned to live in the land of Judah from all the nations to which they'd been driven, the men, the women, the children, the princesses, and every person whom Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, also Jeremiah the prophet, and Baruch, the son of Neriah. 
And they came into the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord, and they arrived at Tapanes. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in Tapanes, Take in your hands large stones and hide them in the mortar in the pavement that is at the entrance to Pharaoh's palace in Tapanes, in the sight of the men of Judah. And say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will send and take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will set his throne above these stones that I have hidden, and he will spread his royal canopy over them. He shall come and strike the land of Egypt, giving over to pestilence those who are doomed to pestilence, to captivity those who are doomed to captivity, and to the sword those who are doomed to the sword. And I shall kindle a fire in the temples of the gods of Egypt. He shall burn them and carry them away captive, and he shall clean the land of Egypt as a shepherd cleans his cloak of vermin, and he shall go away from there in peace. He shall break the obelisk of Heliopolis, which is in the land of Egypt, and the temples of the gods of Egypt he shall burn with fire. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would teach us to seek your will in and through your word, but then to receive it in faith. And so, Father, we pray that we would be warned and enlightened by the message of this chapter, these two chapters, and that by trusting you, we would have your salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a recently uh, converted Christian about 30-some years ago, Believers often spoke of being in the center of God's will. I've been a Christian for a long time. You've probably heard that expression. I'm trying to be in the center of God's will. You need to be in the center of God's will. That's where blessing is going to be. That's where it's going, you're going to have success. Now, that meant that you were to be in the place where God wanted you doing the thing that God intended Now, I want to be positive enough to say it's good that they were talking about being in God's will. But on the most part, that was not a very helpful statement or perspective, mainly because it discounted the the sovereignty of God. Under this view, God's sovereign will is in the hand of the Christian, when in fact the Christian is in the hand of the sovereign God. That's the reality. And moreover, this idea of being in the center of God's will assumes that you and I have the ability of subjectively knowing what we're to be doing today and subjectively knowing what his personal will is for our own lives, what John Calvin said, the secret will of God, in contrast to the revealed will of God. And that, was, and that if there was blessing, that was a sign that we had succeeded. We were in the center of God's will. If there were trials, then we obviously were not pleasing the Lord. When you think about heroic missionaries who are manifestly doing God's will, it is we know it's his will for the gospel to be spread, and how often they are oppressed and they're harassed and they're downcast. Are we going to say that they are out of the center of God's will? The whole notion is called into question. Because God's will is not discovered through subjective soul gazing. God's will is found in the Bible by the reading of God's holy word. And an example is provided by the leaders of the remnant of the Judeans who were still in the promised land after the fall of Jerusalem. That's who's in this passage today. And the prophet Jeremiah had revealed a message containing God's will for them. The problem was that Johanan, the son of Korea, and these other leaders and the people were not willing to accept what the Lord's will was. When he told them what the word of the Lord was, they didn't like it. It didn't conform to their own desires, and so they reject it. They're like many Christians today who call the pastor after they'd made, they've made a dubious, maybe manifestly unbiblical decision, and they call and ask you to pray for them. How much better it is to say, let's study the Bible together and make sure that before I make a decision, it's in keeping with the will of God in Scripture. Well, when Johanan and the other leaders approached Jeremiah in chapter 24, 42, seeking God's will, the truth is they had already made up their own minds. They were going to depart from Judah. 
And they'd been traumatized by all that happened there, the, the conquest of Judah, the fall of Jerusalem, and then most recently the murder. We just studied this, the murder in such a wicked fashion of Gedaliah, the governor, and that made them afraid because Gedaliah was the governor installed by Nebuchadnezzar. And they were afraid of reprisals. And so in this passage, they, they seek God's will. That's the first thing we'll see from the prophet. And we'll learn some lessons about the right way. And there was some wisdom, at least in what they said. And we see how they receive God's will. But the sad truth is going to be that they're going to reject God's will. They're going to refuse God's command given through Jeremiah. And because of it, all would be lost. Well, let's look at the first of these. Jeremiah 42 is continuing a narrative that began in chapter 40 after the fall of the city of Jerusalem. And you remember Nebuchadnezzar had very benevolently made Gedaliah the governor over the, the relatively few people who were still on the land. And Gedaliah was a godly man. He was an official from a, 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 a highly positioned family. It was, it was a, a kind thing of Nebuchadnezzar to put him in charge of the people. Now, Jeremiah, you remember, had been given his freedom. He could have gone to Babylon. He could have gone anywhere. And he chose to go where Gedaliah was. And Mizpah was the place. And to be a blessing to the people through God's word. Now, we're not told if Jeremiah was there when what happened next was so terrible. Uh, Ishmael comes in and he slays in such a wicked fashion Gedaliah and so many of the other people. He takes captives with him. There's a pursuit. They're brought back. It's very interesting. We're not told where Jeremiah was in that. But when we get to chapter 42, we know that he is with them. There's a remnant now of the Jewish people left in the land And there is Jeremiah, and he is approached by the leaders. Let's look at verses 1 to 3 in chapter 42. Then all the commanders of the forces, and Johanan the son of Korea, and Jezaniah the son of Hoshiah, and all the people, from the least to the greatest, came near and said to Jeremiah the prophet, Let our plea for mercy come before you, and pray to the Lord your God for us. For all this remnant, because we are left with but a few, as your eyes see us, that the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the thing that we should do. That was a very wise action. They have a prophet of the Lord in their midst who is able to have revelation from God, and they do the right thing. They appeal to him to get guidance from the Lord. And of course, he was by this time well proven to be a true prophet. And this sets a good example for us. We will, at time to time, we'll have an important decision to make. Where to live, what career to pursue, who to marry, all of these big decisions in our own lives. And we should be praying about them, asking God to give us wisdom and to direct us. And we should ask others to pray for us as well, particularly godly people. That's all very good. And in addition to praying, we should seek God's will in the Holy Scriptures. And that's effectively what they're doing. Because Jeremiah provides revelation, propositional answers from God. And so they're seeking God's word. We have the Holy Scriptures where God has provided all things that pertain to life and godliness. Second Peter 1 verse 3. Now the Bible tells us what we need to know about the most important things, the most important decisions. Hey, here's a big question without it being in our mind. What will happen to me after I die? I bet you thought that. I hope you thought about that. And will I go to heaven when I die or will I go into God's judgment? Well, the Bible gives you a overwhelmingly clear answer that you must believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God sent his son to make atonement by dying on the cross and by confessing your sins and looking in faith to the blood of Jesus, you will be saved. Acts 16.31. That's a really important thing that God, the Bible reveals. How's another question? How should I live? What should be the manner of my living day to day? I, I hope you've asked about that. You're not just going with the flow. But you've said, now, how am I supposed to be living? And the Bible contains the Ten Commandments, which are amazing. How, how many times in pastoral counseling, someone will say to me, I've got a real conundrum, pastor. My boss wants me to lie to my customers. And I'm like, oh, that's a tough one. Let's break out the Ten Commandments, see if it's any help. Sure enough, there's a commandment right for that. And God's word tells us his timeless, unchanging moral law, what is right right, and what is wrong, how good it is to discover the will of God in his word. 
But then there are more subjective questions. I've mentioned some of them already. You know, where, where should I live? What job should I have? Should I go here? Should I go there? And the Bible does not provide personalized answers, but rather it teaches us principles that we would make decisions that are in line with God's will. Please, when you're making a personal decision, don't open your Bible at a random page, put your finger on it, and think you're getting the word of God. No, you're, you're being superstitious. That's all you're doing. That's not how God's word works. It's not a talisman. It's not a Ouija board or some occult way it's being treated. Don't do that. No, instead, learn the Bible. Learn who God is. Learn his way. Be a man or woman who lives in the Bible. And the Bible tells you you will be able to make decisions subjectively about your life in conformity with God's will. That's what Paul says in that vitally important statement of Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, listen, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So for the way for you to be able to make personal decisions is to become wise in the truth of God's word and the precepts of scripture and you'll be able to discern what is good and right. Now the Judean leaders who approach Jeremiah for guidance rightly see this whole process, this availability of God's word as an expression of God's mercy and that's what it is. Verse 2, let our plea for mercy come before you and pray to the Lord your God for us that the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the thing which we should do. And they also show us the attitude with which we should approach the scriptures. They have a, they're, they're speaking a high view of scripture. And so they fortify their request with a solemn pledge that they will obey whatever it is the Lord commands. Verse 5, may the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act according to all the word with which the Lord your God sends us, sends you to us. Now that's the way we should study the Bible. We should open up our Bibles convinced that whatever the Bible says is true. Whatever God says in Scripture is true. Uh, St. Augustine at one point made the comment that, you know, there are times, particularly over the years, where the Bible has said something and I've been kind of outraged by it. And that's just totally wrong. Either I'm wrong or the Bible's wrong. He says, I've learned that when that happens, I'm the one who's wrong. Because I'm I'm a sinner. I'm unwise. What do I know? This is the word of the God who made the heavens and the earth, the one perfect, infinite, holy God. My friends, we should approach the Bible this way. Lord, speak, your servant listens. And whatever your word says, I may not like it at first. I may may have to pray about it. I may have to work my way into it. But we start with the premise that thy word is truth. The word of God is true. And that's what they say. Look how they conclude in verse 5. Whether it is good or bad, I love how they put it. They should have said whether it seems good or bad because it's not bad, but you get their their drift. Whether it's good or bad, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we we are sending you, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. And so they show us that the way to be in God's will, there's nothing wrong with saying I want to be in God's will, but we do that by obeying the commands of the Bible. You know, the most important command of the Bible is that you would believe in God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for salvation. Being in God's will does not involve knowing things the Bible has not said, but rather trusting and doing what the Bible has said. Now, that's all very good, except we notice there are signs of concern. There's really two things I want to point out that are concerning. And the first is in verse 2 when they ask Jeremiah to pray to the Lord your God for us. You notice the problem? It's good to have other people praying. But we ask them to pray not because we can't pray. It's not that, well, Jeremiah, you're a man of God and you're the only man of God here. We're not men and women of God. So we need you to pray for us. That's the way the ungodly act. But they should have said pray to the Lord our God. And it reminds us it is essential that every one of us in this room should have the ability to pray. Prayer is not easy. Prayer is maybe the highest spiritual activity possible to us, but that we realize that we have access with God the Father through Jesus Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit. Make sure you're able to to say, I am going to go to the Lord. I am going to pray to the Lord. 
And it seems to me that Jeremiah had this concern because of the way he answers them. And look in verse 4. Behold, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your request. What he meant was, it's not just my God. It's your God as well. And, and they take his hint. In verse 6, they say, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God. We got, we got it right that time, Jeremiah. But they had to be tutored in it. My friends, for us to receive God's word, we must own the Lord in personal faith. He must be the Lord, our God, who we know and we trust. That's the first warning sign. The second one is actually more significant. I mentioned it early. Namely, it's perfectly clear that when they ask for the Lord's will, they ask for the Lord's instructions, they have already completely made up their own minds. They're asking God for the place of refuge they should seek, but they're moving In fact, the previous chapter concluded by by showing them on a trajectory towards Egypt. And does this mean that what they really wanted was for the Lord to confirm their own plans and designs? Well, I think Jeremiah's reply suggests that yes, he is at least suspicious of that. Look at verse 4. He agrees, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your request. But then he says this, whatever the Lord answers you, I will tell you. Now, he seems to be saying, you might not like what you hear. By the way, that is true when you come to church and the sermon is going to be preached. Be prepared to hear something that maybe you don't like. It is not my job to say things that you or visitors like. But like Jeremiah, to declare unvarnished the word of God that comes up from the scripture. The the expository sermon is a display of what is in the text. I will keep nothing back from you, so be ready, he says. They should be prepared not merely to have a reflection of their own designs and thoughts and desires. No, he would report whatever the Lord said, even if it did not conform to their wisdom, which was likely. And every Christian needs the same warning. Like a good preacher today, Jeremiah would deliver the truth, whether no matter, he would, my job is to explain the Bible, but not to hide anything to proclaim the truth. Sometimes I preach it knowing it's not going to be popular. Sometimes I have whole weeks going, well, this is not, this may not go over well, but then my job's to pray. I've had situations where my duty in preaching the text was going to cause me to say something that as a pastor, I thought might hurt someone who was grieving. And I concluded it is not my right not to say the word of the Lord. I merely, in fact, I had a situation 20 years ago where a family had just lost a baby. And all week I was dreading something in the sermon. And I was going to couch it as well as I could, but I didn't have the right to make it not say what it said. And I just spent the whole week praying. And the couple came to me afterwards and said it was just the word of God that we needed. It's how do I know? It's not my job to know. It's my job to preach the truth. But see, then you must be prepared to receive truth even if it runs against the grain of your desires and your supposed wisdom. Here's what God said in Isaiah 55, 8-9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Well, that is what we should know as we seek the will of God through his word. Well, secondly, let's see how it came to them, how they received God's will. Now, these men are distressed. They're in transit. They're afraid. They're looking for a place of safety. So it's rather remarkable that the Lord makes them cool their heels for 10 days, as verse 7 says. After 10 days, he comes back. And we're not told the reason for it. I'll tell you one thing that's not true. It wasn't because Jeremiah was trying to figure it out. And some commentators say, you know, he had a lot of philosophying to do. He had a, he had to put, no, that's not what's going on. He was praying and a word came from the Lord in the Lord's timing. It's his timing that answers these things. John McKay suggests this, that they were not to be hasty or to be allowed to bounce themselves into a hurried decision because of their anxiety. That, that, that may be what's going on. That the Lord is preparing them to hear it by giving them time to prepare themselves. Well, finally, Jeremiah summons Johanan, the other commanders, in fact, all the people, verse 8, and he gives what will be his last recorded speech on Judean soil in the promised land. In the short, the Lord gave a command that was designed to test the people's faith. 
And here's what the Lord said. They were to remain in the land of Judah and not depart. They asked a simple question. God gave them a direct answer. Should, where should we go? He said, you should stay in Judah. Do not go to Egypt. Verse 10, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your plea of mercy before him, if you will remain in this land, then I will build you up and not pull you down. Now remember that Jerusalem fell because its kings failed to trust the Lord when they were afraid. They had security concerns. They were legitimate concerns. They wanted safety. They wanted prosperity. They wanted blessing. And, and so, many, so, so much of Jeremiah's message, not to mention the other prophets in prior times, was, okay, you've got to trust the Lord, and you've got to trust the Lord by believing and obeying his word. Do you realize the message doesn't change at any time? That, that's the challenge for you and me in every generation. It's, okay, here's the thing. You're going to have to trust the Lord. You're going to have to believe his word. You're going to have to act on it in faith. And if you do so, that that will be the answer that will give you the blessing you seek. I will build you up. I will not pull you down. And so now this remnant of survivors receives the same challenge. The circumstances are different. They're the trust the Lord by remaining in the land and not departing, even though they were afraid of the Babylonians if they stayed. Now, back in chapter 1, which is such an important chapter to Jeremiah, remember, that's where this teenage boy, maybe a 13-year-old, received his call to be a prophet. And the Lord told him then that he was going to use Jeremiah for two main things. One was to destroy and the other to build up. Jeremiah 1.10, God was going to pluck and break down, but then to build and to plant. Well, the plucking and the breaking down had taken place now. That was the fall of Jerusalem. And so now if the people trusted the Lord, he would build them up. This is what he's saying. Actually, I'm looking forward to, to building my people and planting you and causing you to flourish in a new day. Now, previously, however, in the eyes of Judah's leaders, it seemed unlikely that judgment would ever come. Remember, Jeremiah said, if you don't trust the Lord, if you keep worshiping idols and, and stop trusting in the temple building, all these vain things, God's going to judge the city. Jerusalem's going to fall. And they kind of said, that doesn't seem likely to us. We don't see that happening. And it did happen. Now, the opposite's the case. He says, well, you need to stay in the land. I know you're afraid of what Nebuchadnezzar is going to do because of the whole Gedalia murder thing. But, but trust me, and I will plant you, I will keep you safe. It seemed unlikely to their wisdom, and yet it was God's word. This was the answer that he gave them. They should stay in Judah and trust the Lord's word. Now this is followed by a corresponding second if-then construction with regard to this idea of going to Egypt. By the way, the fact that the Lord answers in the way he does shows that he knows their hearts. They had promised to obey whatever the Lord said through Jeremiah. But the Lord anticipates that they're going to ignore that. And he tells them what happens if, verse 13, they are disobeying the voice of the Lord your God. So he's going to warn them, if you go to Egypt, let me tell you what's going to happen because it's going to be disobedience. And they had hoped that by going to Egypt they would escape violence. Look at verse 14, there we shall not see war or hear the sound of the trumpet or go hungry for bread. But the problem is it now would be in violation of God's word. And if they did that, Jeremiah tells them, the very trials they hoped to escape from Judah would find them in Egypt. Verse 16, then the sword that you fear shall overtake you in the land of Egypt and the famine of which you are afraid shall follow close after you to Egypt and there you shall die. I very often think of Psalm 56, verse 3. David says, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. And my friends, that is so much of the challenge and the test of our faith. What do we do when we're afraid? Do we take recourse to the, to the wisdom of the world, to our own desires, our own foolish wisdom, our van vanity? Or do we say, I am going to trust the Lord. I'm going to open the Bible. I'm going to study the Bible. I'm going to hear the sound teaching of the Bible. And I'm going to commit myself to the salvation that God promises to give. This is the great issue. 
And God's mercy provides a great hope. Let me say, especially if you are, and maybe you understand yourself, that you are a sinner and you've made a shipwreck of your life and you've, you've not been doing God's will. You've been violating God's word. You've been foolishly living in sin and it's brought you to, to, to a low place. But don't forget, this is the God of mercy. And he offers a safety. That's the first incentive the Lord gives them. He's going to add incentives And the first is his compassion, his nature. Verse 12, I will grant you mercy. Do you realize the mercy that is in the Lord? That if you will come to him, he will show compassion for you? Oh, Judah had been overripe in their sin and they were overdue for God's judgment and that judgment had come but there was still mercy in the Lord why because as the prophet Micah says he delights in showing mercy he is a God of grace and if they will turn to him in faith he gives a hope he gives you hope if we will believe repent and turn in faith to Jesus God is compassionate he is merciful to restore and he will relent from judgment. Now the second encouragement reminds us that not only is God gracious and compassionate, he also happens to be sovereign and almighty. Look at verse 11. Do not fear the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and deliver you from his hand. See, this is what was driving them. They were afraid of the Babylonian king, but but the Lord now commanded them to trust him who was sovereign to govern the thoughts and actions of the king. The proverb says, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And God says, look, I'm perfectly able to change Nebuchadnezzar's mind. By the way, I'm the one who brought him. He's going to call him Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, in the next chapter. The whole reason he came was because I sovereign, I'm using him. I'm making use of him. He's my servant. And, and if I promise you, you'll be safe from Nebuchadnezzar. I, the sovereign, omnipotent God, will keep that promise. And still, by all appearances, Egypt was such a better choice. Philip Reichen comments, it was a safe neighborhood, a long, long way from Babylon. And the Egyptians had plenty of food. They had a stable economy. So going down to Egypt made a lot of sense. Yeah, but the problem is that God had commanded them not to go to Egypt. By the way, this whole idea of Israel finding salvation in Jesus in Egypt is, is forgetting the grand story. Egypt is where they were saved from. Egypt is a type of sin and its dominion and its reign and power. God said, do not go to Egypt. And if they did, despite appearances, they would fall under his wrath. So Jeremiah is going to pile on. He, he, he gets a bit repetitive here as he's trying to persuade them not to go to Egypt because they'll suffer the very calamities they're seeking to escape. Verse 16, the sword that you fear shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt. The famine of which you are afraid shall follow close after you to Egypt. There you shall die. Verse 17 says, if you go to Egypt, it means death. There'll be no remnant or survivor from the disaster I will bring upon them. Verse 18 says that God's going to make an example of them if they do that. You shall become an execration, a horror, a curse, and a taunt. Verses 19 and 20 says, by the way, remember that that pledge that you made 10 days ago? You think I didn't hear that? You said, let the Lord be witness against us? Well, the Lord is a witness. You said, whatever the Lord our God says, declare to us and we will do it. The Lord would hold them to account. And Jeremiah concludes by pointing out that he had faithfully discharged his duty. He had declared the word of the Lord Verse 21, but you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God in anything that he sent me to tell you. Jeremiah is saying, by the way, I'm not exactly shocked by by your attitude about this. Because your whole history is that of refusing the word of the Lord. They had a long habit of refusing God's will in favor of their own. And so he says, know for a certainty then that you shall die by the sword, by famine, by pestilence in the place where you desire to live. You see, there's the kicker. It's what you, it's what you desire. It's what seems right in your own mind, in your own eyes. And you, you need to let go of that. And you must do what is God's desire for you. Only in that way could they have life. Do you realize that you and I have probably never been, may never be in this exact kind of situation? But we make decisions along these same lines very regularly. They thought Egypt was a place of safety. It would go well for them if they went there despite God's warning. 
And people today are tempted to think in the same way. I'm worried about my future, so I'm going to hoard all my money for myself. And of course, that's not what the New Testament says we should be doing. God provides for you. You need money. You work hard. But you're not just to hoard it all for yourself and in that way to, to, to save your life. And you think, but that seems safe to me. No, no, it's contrary to God's word, so it's not safe. People think it's safe to engage in a little premarital sex. Who can that hurt? Or or maybe you you say, look, in the office, I I let myself join into the coarse joking and some of the ungodly banter. It's no harm. It's a safe thing to do. It It is against God's will. It is under God's judgment. These are not safe things to do. It is never safe to sin. It is not safe to dabble in sin. But on the other hand, things that in our worldly thinking we would think are not wise or safe. Uh, Things like tithing of your income. How can I do that? Because God has commanded it, but he's also promised a blessing to it. Or how about this? If people say, oh, what kind of life are you going to have? If you marry one girl or marry one boy and you keep your vows all the days of your life and you're faithful to one another, even when you don't seem to be getting along, you trust the Lord and you work through it and you keep your vows and God blesses it. We think of what about this one? Oh, what a danger. It's not safe at all for you to share the gospel with a coworker, with a family member. What a risk. You're exposing yourself. No, you're, you're, you're doing God's will. According to God's word, it's the safest and best thing we can ever do. My friends, the most important of these categories is people think, well, if I, if I believe in Jesus, if I confess my sin and surrender my life to him, and by the way, saving faith is that. It's the commitment of yourself to him and saving faith. If I do that, I'm going to lose it all. But you see, it's exactly the opposite. You're going to lose it all if you do not do it. Jesus says, what shall a man gain if he lose his own soul, though he gain the whole world? If you lay hold of Jesus and saving faith, you will have eternal safety and present spiritual blessing because of the will and the word of God. Well, the reply then that these leaders give to Jeremiah along with the people shows that they refuse God's will. We've seen how they sought God's will. It looked good, but it really wasn't. We've seen how they received it, but now they're going to reject it. In vehement language, they refuse the Lord's will for them through Jeremiah. And like so many people after them, they did this by attacking the messenger. They say to the prophet Jeremiah, verse 2 of chapter 43, you're telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say, do not go to Egypt to live there. Now that may seem surprising, given their earlier promise to accept whatever message Jeremiah brought them. But you see, now it came, it shows the hypocrisy of their profession of faith. They had not surrendered to the Lord in true faith. They were merely looking for him to confirm what their sovereign will wanted to do. And when the Lord did not go with their plans, they vented their anger against Jeremiah. Well, my friends, when the Bible is taught faithfully, when the word of God is taught, if you have a quarrel with what is preached, your quarrel is not with me, it's not with the church, it's with God. So long as the word of God is faithfully taught, that's the preacher's job, to preach the word of God unvarnished, unfailingly, honestly, straight up. That's what Jeremiah does. And when you reject that, your quarrel is with God. I I had to talk to a neighbor, fairly new neighbor, and uh, she and her husband were coming to Greenville and the recruiter was driving her around and they happened to be very conservative Roman Catholics. And the, uh, the, the person driving around drove by the building you and I are sitting in right now. They drove by Second Presbyterian Church. And uh, the person said, oh, that's a very conservative church. And they teach strange things. And so my neighbor said to me the other day, I just realized that you're the man she was speaking about. <laughs> Not just me. But she, you're, you're the one preaching all those straight things. And I said, they are only strange to those who are strangers to the word of God. And I invite you to come or tune in to our live cast worship service and you will see that we proclaim nothing but that which is found in the word of God. If it is strange and offensive to you, it can only be because you are a stranger to God himself. Well, Christopher Wright summarizes their attitude. They asked for truth, but then they called it a lie. They heard God's voice, but would not listen to it. 
They sought God's will and then followed their own. Let me ask you, do you find yourself doing the same thing? Particularly when the Bible teaches something that's going to cost you or it's going to require you to change. Oh, I remember particularly in my early days as a Christian, I remember the first times I heard about predestination and sovereign election. I thought the preacher had lost his mind. He lost it, but he had this pesky habit of saying he was actually preaching in Romans 9. The first sermon I heard after I was converted was from Romans 9. Let the hearer understand. And, and, I, and I realized he, was, he kept going to the text. I, I'm thinking, he's crazy. Then I'm going, God's crazy. And then I realized I'm the one who's crazy. We must surrender. This is our worship, that we surrender. Yes, our intellect. Yes, we do. Our will. We surrender our worldview to the word of God because as Jesus said to the Father, thy word is truth. The word of God is truth. It's the word of God. His is the true and living way. But they broaden their attack and they suggest that Jeremiah lied because he was under human manipulation. Look at verse 3. Baruch, the son of Neriah, has set you against us to deliver you as into the hands of the Chaldeans that they may kill us or take us into exile in Babylon. And we don't know why they turned on Baruch other than convenience, although we do know he was from a prominent family, so they might have thought he's this political figure influencing Jeremiah. Now we've seen that's not true. We also know that because of the nature of Jeremiah's message, they were together accused of being pro-Babylonian, which they actually were not. But the main thing is that this same line of attack is made against the Bible today, that those who reject its message will use the tactic of saying it is corrupted through human influence. And so they'll say things like, the Bible is a collection of outmoded human ideas rather than the unchanging word of God. This is where so much effort, if you go to a liberal arts college, you're going to hear this probably from from professors. They're going to give you all kinds of things, trying to persuade you that the Bible is a merely human book. Things like this, it's it's, it's literature like any other human book. And they'll, they'll argue this way. Phil Riken puts it this way. They will turn to the New Testament teaching about the incarnation and the virgin birth or on sexuality or on things like the ordination of women. And they'll say that was just a cultural expression of those times. That's just the Apostle Paul's opinion for his ancient times. I've actually heard it said of Jesus Christ that he was corrupted by the prevailing views of his generation. I want to go, the man, the son of God, who died on the cross because he would not yield an iota of truth to their lies. My friends, Jesus did not say what he said because he was corrupted by a Baruch in the world. No, to the contrary, the Bible insists that it is God's unfailing and true word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God-breathed. Now, what he's saying is he's he's admitting, yes, there's human agencies. Yes, Baruch was his scribe. Yes, it's Jeremiah, the prophet, through whom the word of God is coming. But by the the work of the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1.20 says, the Holy Spirit carried them along. It was God who spoke by the prophets. Yes, it was by the prophets, and it's God's word. It is God who speaks. And therefore, it is true to refuse God's word. This is going to be the message to them. If they refuse God's word, they will perish under judgment. And and my friends, so will you. So will any of us if we refuse God's word. Maybe the chief of these errors and lies today says there's many ways to God. Oh, there's many ways to God. I like to say, you know, it's true. All roads lead to God. And every one of them leads to the condemnation of a holy God upon wickedness and sin, except for that one way marked by the cross of Calvary. And Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you refuse his voice, you must be judged. And this was a very path of destruction that the remnant of Judah chooses, signing, as it were, their own death certificate. Look at verses 5 to 7. Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces took all the remnant of Judah who'd returned to live in the land of Judah from all the nations to which they'd been driven, the men, women, children, princesses, every person whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, also Jeremiah the prophet, and Baruch, the son of Neriah. And they came into the land of Egypt, For they did not obey the voice of the Lord. 
And so they take all these people, these military commanders, and they arrive in Tapanes. It's the, the first big city, town you're going to hit when you cross over from Israel into Egypt. It was a built-up place on the border. And there was Pharaoh's palace there. It may have been a palace of Pharaoh. It could have been a governor building, but it, you, you get, it's, the, it's the Pharaoh building in town. And the Lord says, Jeremiah, it's time for you to perform another sign. Now, that's bad news. We've seen Jeremiah give signs before, and they were always signs of judgment because the word of grace had been rejected. Remember when he smashed the pottery so many chapters ago and said, why are you doing that? Because you won't believe that God's going to smash Jerusalem unless you repent. By the way, it's true of our lives. It's a sign of judgment. And then he he travels all the way to Babylon. Remember that? He takes this last months. He goes to the Euphrates and he buries a loincloth. Then he goes and gets it. What was that all about? God's going to send you into exile because you will not believe these signs are dramatic, attention-getting ways to proclaim the judgment. And, and here's another one. He's to go to the palace and the sight of the people of Judah. And he and I'm sure Baruch are going to carry these big blocks of stone and they bury them into the ground. People are going, what is Jeremiah doing? He is building something in front of the palace. What is it? And here's the message Jeremiah is to give them. In the, it is the, he's to bury them in the mortar in the pavement that is the entrance to Pharaoh's place. Verse 10, behold, I will send and take Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and I will set his throne above these stones I have hidden, and he will spread a royal canopy over them. What are you doing, Jeremiah? The Lord's having me lay the foundation for a throne. Whose throne is it going to be? Nebuchadnezzar's. It was the sign of judgment against them. The very same Nebuchadnezzar whom they sought to escape by disobeying God's word was going to come into Egypt and inflict the very kind of violence they had seen in Judah. Now Jeremiah foretells this coming in striking terms of violence and destruction. Briefly, he will strike the land of Egypt, verse 11. And he's going to give the the, the typical triple dose that the prophets talk about pestilence, captivity, and the sword, and there will be death. The Lord's going to use Nebuchadnezzar to destroy the temples of Egypt's false gods. Verse 12, I will kindle a fire in the temple of the gods of Egypt. Just as he did in Judah, he was going to sift the people. He uses the expression of a shepherd pulling vermin and and things off of his coat. Nebuchadnezzar is just going to, to take them all apart. That's what's going to happen. And then the great obelisks of Heliopolis would burn along with the temples. In short, the very kind of judgment and destruction they were hoping to escape would be visited upon them. And history records that Jeremiah's prophecy was fulfilled 10 years after the fall of Jerusalem, 568 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar, according to the word of the Lord, invaded the land of the Nile. And unlike the Jewish exiles in Babylon... Remember, that's where God promised salvation to the Babylonian captives. These disobedient refugees in Egypt would suffer wrath, wrath because of unbelief. The breaking of their vow to obey Jeremiah's word had been a reenacting of the breaking of the old covenant. And so it got a reenacting of the judgment that befell the breaking of the old covenant. And Jesus spoke words that tell us the relevance of this to us about the final judgment to come. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. Amen. Here's the gospel call. But conversely and by clear implication, Jesus says those who do not heed the word of God, do not receive the word of God and believe in Jesus Christ will forfeit their lives. Is that you? Is that you? The word of God proclaims Christ as the savior of sinners. You will be judged if you do not heed. Well, let me conclude by turning to Jeremiah. With the others, he went out down into Egypt. Isn't that sad? He prophesied the fall of Jerusalem. He loved Judea. He'd stayed there to minister to the people, but he knew that the future lay through Babylon. That's where the promises were. And then he himself gets scarfed up and he is taken into Egypt. Well, let me ask the question. Does that mean that he was not in the center of God's will? Did he do something wrong? Did he not manage things right? 
and suffer this tragic end to a tearful life? Well, my friends, the answer is no. He was not out of the center of God's will. He'd been obeying God's word throughout his life and ministry. And so this delivery, this sad delivery of Jeremiah into Egypt, the very place where he has told them God forbade them to go, it doesn't reflect his failure, but rather the continuing purpose for which Jeremiah was summoned by the will of God. You see, as they brought Jeremiah, they were ensuring the continued ministry of God's word. That's what they, why they thought if he was a liar, he, would be, he should be brought, but they brought him. Robert Davidson says it would have been in character for Jeremiah willingly to go along with the people who had rejected the word of the Lord. He could have gone to Babylon. He had that opportunity. We know his heart was there. But he wanted to be present to call a people who face God's judgment to repent and be saved by believing the word of grace. And so he was right where the Lord wanted him to be. He was preaching the gospel to sinners so that by faith some would be saved. Well, if we will follow Jeremiah's example, we will not cease proclaiming the message of truth and salvation from the Bible, no matter what the churches around us do, what the broader church movement does, no matter what's happening in the world, we will proclaim Jesus Christ and his salvation because it is truth. And should God place, if he should see, be, feel, see fit to put you and me in a dark and ungodly and shockingly immoral generation, and I don't have to tell you that he has done that very thing, then like Jeremiah, we should preach the word. We should band together as a church and proclaim it. We should be sending missionaries out. We should be putting on our ministries. We should be inviting people to the church. We should be warning people about the judgment of God, of God on sin and the salvation and forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. We must tell those who are rebels against God's will in sin that Jesus has fulfilled God's will, that there might be salvation For sinners who believe, here's how Jesus put it. I'll close with this. He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For this is the will of him who sent me, that I will lose nothing of all that he's given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Amen. Father in heaven, we pray that Jesus' voice would be heard. And I pray for those who are here, Lord, who have not listened to your word, have not come to the blood of Jesus Christ, confessing their sins, and surrendered in faith to him that they might be delivered and redeemed. And Father, we pray that you would enable us, like Jeremiah, to go on. There may be criticism, there may be misrepresentation, But don't let us, Lord, be dissuaded from the path of proclaiming the whole counsel of God, all the truth of your word, centered and focused in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And would you, by your mercy, save. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.